Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. The colonial history of international law, which delineated world territories between the European powers, continues to permeate the structure of international law, which has legitimized colonial gains. The permanent members of the Security Council are remnants from the victories of World War II, while the inclusive General Assembly resolutions lack teeth. In this hierarchical space, international human rights law, such as the responsibility to protect people from grave crimes, has resulted in selective enforcement by the opportunistic utilization of human crises for political gain. With a malleable definition of what constitutes gravity for international law to be triggered, culpability has escaped the great powers, delegitimizing the entire process. Yet as much scholarship has focused on the responsibility to protect and consequent humanitarian intervention with its unintended consequences and ability to be manipulated, Rachel Lopez, a law professor at Drexel University, has recently published an article on the duty to refrain from assisting states in grave crimes. This is a necessary duty, for states rarely commit grave crimes without the assistance of other states, and one that lacks the inherent problems of the responsibility to protect, including military intervention, by which we have bombed people for their peace and security. Hey, Rachel, it's Alexandra. How are you? Hi there. How are you? So last year, Rachel, you published an article on the duty to refrain, articulating state accomplice liability for grave crimes under international law, the practical benefits thereof, and a means of enforcement. You're also currently writing an article on the jurisprudence of gravity in public international law, articulating its primary importance for both jurisdiction and liability of an offense. These two articles are seminal works and relate to each other, because the gravity of the assistance and the underlying crime are pertinent factors in finding a state has breached the duty to refrain from assisting others in committing grave international crimes. But before we delve deeper into each issue, I think it may be more useful to backtrack and provide a general introduction to this legal space we're denoting as international law, how it's developed, including from treaties to custom, their inextricable interrelation, the treatises of scholars, and how they can establish just Kogan's or peremptory norms. Absolutely. Um, I was trying to think about, you know, what when I teach this to my students, what is the best way to explain it? And students often think of the law as only being black letter law. So law that's written down in books and has been adopted by uh, various government entities. And what I try to explain to them in terms of international law is that, you know, there's much broader features that are at work here, but in many ways, they sort of mimic um, what we consider to be our law in the U.S., but may not even realize it. And so, you know, some of the sources that have been identified by the International Court of Justice are things like international conventions and treaties, which are sort of the international equivalent of statutes, Um We also have international or customary international law, and I tell my students that probably everyone in the class has woke up and brushed their teeth, but there's no law on the books that says that we have to brush our teeth every morning. It's just our general practice, and it's very well accepted. And if you didn't do it, there would be some consequences. People may not want to talk to you as much. They may not want to sit next to you. And it's sort of similar um, 
in, in terms of international law. So states um, sort of enforce this through their practice. Um, you will become um, a rogue state and a pariah if you do something that aff- offends customary international law. And there's really sort of two elements to customary international law. One is, you know, state practice. What are states actually doing to demonstrate that they think something is illegal? Um, the second is a concept known as a juris, and that's how states actually discuss what they think the law is. And so those are two of the sort of foundations of customary international law. Another source of law that's been identified by the International Court of Justice are what are called general principles of law. Um, And they sometimes refer to them as general principles of law recognized by civilized nations. And those basically are, you know, the laws that we accept um, generally across the board that apply normally to things like judicial process, procedure, and evidence. So we might think of, for example, the concept of double jeopardy as something that appears across the world um, and and nearly all jurisdictions as something that is prohibited. So we're not allowed to be tried for the same thing twice. And that could be, you know, articulated as a general principle of law. Um, Finally, you know, you mentioned the idea of treatises of scholars. Now, sometimes my students really, um, this one in particular, they don't understand why is it important what academics or scholars think. Um, But I let them know that indeed, you know, in courts um, in the U.S., um, the Supreme Court, for example, regularly look at um, law review articles to help gain an understanding about the laws that are on the books. And so this is really sort of a similar source um, you know, of international law, um, courts look to sort of most highly qualified publicists of a variety of nations to determine what do we mean when we say that something is prohibited, for example. Right. So in, in terms of developing international law, if we had a multilateral treaty in which the multitude of states were parties, but only a few states decided not to sign nor nor ratify the treaty, if most states abided by that treaty, would that treaty then become international customary law and applicable to the dissenting states? So it really depends. There are some concepts that are called um, use Kogan's um, norms, and those norms are ones in which no derogation is permitted. So there is no time in which you can deviate from them because they're generally recognized and accepted by the international community of states as being the law. And so some examples that we might think of are prohibitions of genocide, uh, war crimes, slavery, or torture. Um, And the idea really is, is that these norms implicate the international community as a whole. Um, They threaten our peace and security, and so that's why these norms apply to all states. Now, just because um, a number of states decide to um, enter into a treaty, whether it be bilateral or multinational, that doesn't mean that everyone is bound by that. Um, it, It in fact, if you consciously object to a treaty, over time you can say, you know, you can make yourself exempt from it um, by, you know, there's there's various reservations that states enter into uh, when they decide to ratify a treaty saying, no, that provision doesn't apply to me. And if they say that, then it doesn't unless it violates 
what's called a, a use Kogan's um, norm or a preemptory norm because those types of norms, you know, apply universally. There is no exception to them. So what is the duty to refrain and how does it differ from direct state responsibility for grave crimes? So the basic principle is that it's illegal for states you know, if it is indeed illegal for states to violate use Kogan norms, you know, for example, genocide or, or slavery, then it should also be illegal for them to aid other states to do those acts. So in other words, you can't sort of, um, if genocide is prohibited and a violation, uh, you know, to commit genocide would be a violation of use Kogan norms, you can't um, help another state to commit genocide. That would be illegal. That's essentially the duty to refrain, or sometimes I like to refer to it as D2R. Um, and, and there is indeed a heightened duty for states to refrain from aiding and embedding the acts of other allies that actually infringe upon use Kogan's norms. And a good example of this is the situation in, um, in Saudi Arabia and Yemen right now. So we could think of the countries that are directly involved in airstrikes that are indiscriminately killing civilians in Yemen, like Saudi Arabia, to be directly liable um, for these crimes, these atrocities. That's um, They are indeed liable for these acts, but it's not necessarily, or it is not, uh, they are not responsible under D2R because these are the acts that they're doing directly. They don't have an intermediary actor doing them. On the other hand, um, countries like the U.S. and the U.K. are countries that are actually providing technical assistance and weapons to the Saudi-led coalition that are perpetrating these atrocities. And they would be liable under D2R because they are indeed providing the weapons and material and logistical support that are you know, permitting these atrocities to occur. Of course, they must know that they're doing so, um, and I believe that they do know that they're doing so. Um, so I would argue that they are, um, you know, violating this principle. All right. That, that the U.S. and the U.K. by selling arms to the coalition that is indiscriminately bombing civilians and cultural and religious heritage, that they know that and that they're um, assisting in the facilitation of a great crime, a war crime. Yeah, and in essence, the United States, the UK, and other allies are deciding, they're making a decision that because of capitalism, essentially, because they are, you know, their companies are getting money for the weapons they're, they're providing, um, that they want to continue to provide the Saudi-led coalition with arms, even though it's well documented that the coalition is engaging in indiscriminatory uh, airstrikes that have killed, you know, women and children. You, you make an excellent point in your article. In fact, it's the opening sentence of your article that reflects this pertinent point, that states seldom commit grave crimes on their own. You also make the pertinent point that states that have sufficient reasons against being involved in a conflict and directly perpetrating crimes to serve their own interest have even more of an incentive to facilitate the grave crimes of other state actors that serve their interests. May you please elaborate further on these points and why it's necessary to have an articulated and enforceable duty to refrain? Absolutely. Um, well, we can sort of see 
in the nature of conflicts that exist today, why this is so frequent. Um, so right now we see that there are increasingly um, more and more um, joint endeavors and cooperation pe- between states, both in terms of armed conflict and their counterterrorism efforts. Um, so while this cooperation is increasing, so is the likelihood that states are going to aid others to commit grave crimes. And you can just take a quick glance at the evening news to see my point. We see Russia providing weapons to the Assad regime in uh, Syria, um, which it's going to use against it, which it's been using against its own people. We see, of course, as I mentioned before, the United States, the United Kingdom, and France all providing logistical support, intelligence, and weapons to the Saudi-led coalition, whose airstrikes have killed numerous civilians. Um, And so we're seeing these on-the-ground examples, which are not so terribly surprising because committing grave crimes, particularly mass atrocities, require a lot of planning and broad coordination and pulling of resources that often cross borders. Um, and states don't want to be um, necessarily have their boots on the ground in that crisis. Um, at the same time, um, if other states are willing to engage in those acts and it serves their geopolitical interests, then they have an incentive to aid and abet, aid and abet those acts um, and commit grave crimes through another actor. And that's what's occurring, you know, across our globe today, which is why sort of really clearly articulating this prohibition is so important. Right. And it's something that's historically occurred too, like the proxy wars of the Cold War. Absolutely. In fact, the the reason why I came to this point was um, the research that I did in Guatemala. So as I I was a Fulbright scholar in Guatemala in 2016, um, and so much of my research um, showed the U.S.'s involvement in arming the Guatemalan military to commit genocide. And it wasn't that the U.S. was directly engaging in those acts. It was just knowingly, and we know this because of FOIA requests um, that have now been made public that show that they knew that mass, the Guatemalan government were massacring Mayans um, in rural areas in Guatemala, but continued to give them weapons and military support. And I just felt that there had to be some sort of accountability for those acts. And indeed, when I did the research, it was well established that that was prohibited under international law. Yeah. And, and the U.S. has a long record of uh, knowingly facilitating these grave human rights abuses, including in Latin America. And uh, for instance, Pinochet, they have their own September 11th in 1976 when Allende was um, killed and Pinochet became the uh, dictator only because Allende, Salvador Allende, was a socialist. And that really mimics the arguments um, for why the U.S. decided to stay involved despite these atrocities. They really were characterizing the Mayan um, people who were organizing against the Guatemala military as communists. They um, were characterizing them as individuals that were sort of um, agents of Cuba and Russia. And that's you know, the very reason why they became involved in the conflict um, and allowed these atrocities to occur. So you make the case that while much scholarship has focused on the responsibility to protect or the responsibility of states to protect people from human rights abuses when their state is unwilling or unable to do so or is the perpetrator of the abuse, 
there is more advantage to be gained by focusing on articulating and enforcing the duty to refrain due to the intrinsic problems of the responsibility to protect, including with respect to humanitarian intervention, which we'll uh, focus on a bit later. What is the relationship between the duty to refrain and the responsibility to protect? And what are the advantages of focusing on the duty to refrain? So you laid out very clearly and um, with a lot of um, clarity um, what the responsibility to protect is. So just to reiterate, it broadly means that although states have the primary duty to protect their own citizens from human rights abuses, when they fail to do so or are unable to do so, the international community has that responsibility. Um, and really, if you look at the documents that are the foundation of this principle, you'll see that there is a range of tools in the, what's called R2P for short toolbox, um, ranging from economic sanctions to judicial enforcement, but we tend to think of it as military action. So um, it, it tends to become understood to mean military intervention when states are committing mass atrocities against their own citizens. And I sort of lay out in my article that I have a fear that we often are, um, you know, understandably so horrified by these atrocities that we feel this urgent need to act and do something. And I think that's why military intervention um, is, is sort of the articulated value of R2P, that people use R2P to justify military intervention, um, even though it provides for a range of options. And I guess what I'm arguing is that um, D2R, or the duty to refrain, create some space in that calculation. Um, it allows for states to consider before they act, is their action actually going to help or is it going to cause more harm? Um, and I think that, you know, if we more strictly adhere to the principles of D2R, we can in encourage states to examine critically, you know, will military intervention curtail human rights violations before engaging in the use of force? Mm, that's an excellent point. Uh, and I'd like to discuss the, these pervasive problems of humanitarian information, uh, humanitarian intervention in more detail. And um, the first point, though, that I'd like to address is this current structure of the P5 or um, the, per the five permanent members of the Security Council. Now, this is um, from the Cold War. So right after World War II, we um, established the United Nations and we established the Security Council with the five permanent members that were at the time the U.S., the U.K., France, the USSR, and the nationalist government of China. And that government held, which is now the government of Taiwan, held that seat until 1971 when the People's Republic of China was recognized. And now Russia is the successor to the Soviet seat. So only these five members in 2019 still have uh, veto power. Um, now, how does the Security Council work and how does humanitarian intervention in the uh, international sphere, how does that legally work with the veto power of the uh, P5? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so I guess just to point out, just from the list of, of countries that you 
mentioned there. So Russia, China, the United States, France, and the United Kingdom. You might notice that I also mentioned a lot of these as state accomplices to grave crimes. They are actually, um, in some cases, aiding and embedding other nations to commit grave crimes. So therein lies the very problem that we're experiencing um, on the international stage. We see Russia um, repeatedly um, vetoing resolutions that would just mean an investigation of the Assad um, regime's use of chemical weapons against his own people. Um, and this is because Russia has a geopolitical interest in Syria. Um, and, and we see there the failure of this structure, in my view. Um, and as a result, the world is becoming less secure. I vehemently agree with your points. And look, as long as we have the P5 that we have now, um, we're never going to, for instance, uh, address any intervention in Tibet. <laughs> um, but there, there are more visceral problems, I think, with humanitarian intervention. Look, on the one hand, it's an altruistic concept that we shall not stand silent and passive in the face of grave crimes such as genocide, and we shouldn't. But then on the other hand, it's been well documented that the direct effects of humanitarian intervention, and by that I mean military intervention, have resulted in increasing the suffering of already abused peoples. And it's not just military intervention as well, it's sanctions. We have numerous times imposed international sanctions on you know, rogue regimes, and it's had an injurious impact on the public health of the impacted po populations and basically uh, a negligible impact on the targeted regime um, because the leaders are very cushioned against these sanctions. It also seems very counterintuitive to bomb people for their peace. If, in my opinion, it works nearly as well as utilizing pregnancy for contraception. It's 100% effective and defeats the entire purpose. So... I don't think people want to be bombed and shelled for their own protection. If we're talking about any military intervention at all, I actually think boots on the ground would be a better strategy because then you might have less casualties because uh, we do know that airstrikes uh, have a lot of civilian casualties. Another concern is the inherent utility of using the banner of human rights to serve the imperialist interests of the major powers. And this may be done opportunistically by utilizing a humanitarian crisis or even more insidiously by fabricating a humanitarian crisis by partisan media in order to gain public legitimacy for patently aggressive acts. Military intervention, in my opinion, delegitimizes international human rights law because it's largely ex-colonial powers intervening in destabilized former colonies as peacekeepers <clears throat> that are capacity building rather than soldiers fortifying a satellite state. Same story, different hat. What are the international avenues of intervention that focus on the impact on the people that are on the ground that can serve to legitimize international law to not make the already victimized people merely the subjects of the law, but rather its object and take their view into account? Well, what we've seen, if you um, look at sort of the utility of human rights law and studies that have been done by scholars such as Beth Simmons, human rights law is most effective when it is used by local organizers. And I really feel that that's the strength of 
human rights law and even of R2P, supporting those that are on the ground. And there have been some scholars that have argued that we should only intervene uh, when we're doing so, viewing that we have a fiduciary duty to those um, to those who are being uh, targeted either by countries or other actors in that state. And I really think that that's the most powerful use of human rights is to aid those that are most in need. And I, and I think there's sort of this tension between, you know, self-determination and human rights sometimes because self-determination would mean that states have the right to do within their jurisdictions what they want. And I do think there are limits to that. They have to respect a minimum standard of human rights um, when they are acting um, as under the social contract in protection of their citizens. At the same time, there's always this risk that you so eloquently lay out of states using um, the human rights violations that may be occurring um, in those countries to commit um, acts of military intervention that ultimately undermine the populations that most need the protection of the international community. I I don't know that I am wholly against military intervention in all circumstances, but I think that it has to be a last resort. And that's what I'm articulating in this article, that first we need to look at, will it do more harm than good to engage in military intervention? Um, and in terms of what other tools are available to us, um, I think it really should be driven, if we're thinking about it in terms of being a fiduciary duty, by those actors that are on the ground. What did they feel? would be most useful to helping protect their rights because um, it's too often, you know, someone sitting in an office in the Pentagon deciding what is in the best interest of those people that are being marginalized, even when it's done in good faith, which I don't know that it's done always in good faith. And we can think of the example of Iraq as being kind of a very damning example of this. But I, I think that in some instances, they really think that they want to do the right thing, but they're not consulting with a directly affected um, people. And that's what it needs to be. Human rights needs to be people to people and community to community. Um, this sort of top-down approach, to me, just results in further atrocities. Right. And the top-down approach. And e even with respect to uh, the nature of military intervention, right? First, I agree with you, we have to analyze the, and I don't want to say cost-benefit analysis of military intervention, but looking as to whether military intervention is the last resort and would uh, help the people on the ground, but there is uh, there are many different ways to intervene militarily. For instance, do we want airstrikes, which have a proven record of indiscriminate effects and uh, hurting a population, whereas we know dictators are in their bunkers. So um, I do think that if we're doing this analysis as to what causes the least harm to produce the greatest effect to, to protect people, um, I think we need to look at as well the nature of military intervention, right? Yeah, absolutely. We see this in the example of Libya. And so in Libya, um, the Security Council did act. They passed a resolution allowing for airstrikes. Um, and it was used essentially 
to create regimes, regime change in that nation, which ultimately has undermined the rule of law and created more atrocities. And so sometimes, you know, we just, um, it's used for purposes that are greater than what the initial intent was. The example of Libya is such a great example because they used in that resolution the R2P language. This was to protect civilians, and ultimately now they are not safer because of the airstrikes, sort of the empowerment of other forces that, in fact, now are violating the human rights of those that are in that country. Libya is a great example for the unintended consequence that occurred, but also because there were direct interests at stake. You even mentioned this in your article when Obama was discussing whether to intervene in Libya, there were American interests at stake. It wasn't just a purely altruistic action. And uh, I believe that other states had um, the same opinion. They had their own state interests um, to intervene. And this selective humanitarian intervention is pervasive. I mean, let, let's just go back to 99 when everyone was talking about humanitarian intervention and yet hardly anybody was talking about what was then East Timor. Uh, there was no intervention in East Timor. Nearly 25% of the population were brutally injured or killed by the in invading Indonesian army. And uh, the only state that ended up intervening was Australia. And uh, Australia, again, didn't do it out of its pure heart, but decided that this was going to be um, a very strategic thing to do because then it decided it would take most of the oil in the Timor Basin and there have been many um, ICJ actions after that to um, <laughs> delegitimize what Australia took. And by the way, Australia was the only state that uh, recognized Indonesia taking um, East Timor um, when Portugal left uh, because we needed that oil. So it, again, it was all about Australia wanting the oil and nobody else cared about uh, Timor-Leste at all. And yet everyone was talking about humanitarian intervention. So how are, we, how are we going to get away from this selective enforcement of our altruistic principles? <laughs> Well, this sort of gets to the other article um, that I've written on the subject, which is the law of gravity. And, you know, so often we use the gravity of abuses of rogue states or even, you know, states that are unable to pr protect their citizens from other groups um, to legitimize military intervention. You know, we the example that you gave is a, is a perfect example of that. So is Iraq. So, I mean, there, there are just numerous examples um, of gravity being used as the reason why it, we need to intervene. And I think that the the challenge with that is that it is clear that, you know, something needs to be done to protect individuals that are facing genocide, war crimes. Um, but military intervention, um, particularly when it's selective, is not the answer unless it is. And I think that this maybe gets to your earlier point of, you know, the United Nations. We have a structure for what, um, when force is allowed. It's laid out in the UN Charter, right? We're only really allowed to engage in military force in self-defense when there is consent, as there was in Af Afghanistan at one point, um, 
or when the Security Council approves it. Now, that structure has been essentially gutted because of the acts of um, NATO and other um, powers to intervene absent those circumstances. And so we it started essentially with the NATO bombing um, which of Serbia, which was declared um, illegal but legitimate. Um, and so if it's illegal um, but legitimate, what does that say about the state of our international law? And I really think that this is a important time to rethink the laws that govern the use of force. And if it's not working and if we're able to kind of carve out these exceptions when it suits us, we're going to continue to have selective use um, or selective um, evoking of um, humanitarian intervention because states feel like they can do it and there's no consequences to it. What I really see as um, an important step is one, you know, making gravity a little bit more concrete, giving it grounding. I don't think that means that we sort of have to have a universal definition of what a grave atrocity is necessarily, but I do think that we need um, more bounds in terms of when states can use force. Um, As I said, I think that military intervention must be a last resort. I'm not saying that it's never appropriate, but I think that it needs to be on the continuum of things that are available. Other solutions should be examined first. I I definitely agree that they should be examined. And um, I think I would also say that uh, the, the bombing, the NATO bombing that didn't get the Security Council um, authority because Russia used its veto at the time that actually caused a massive humanitarian crisis. And, um, and there's been a lot of scholarship as to um, its legitimacy and um, the, uh, the political interests of the powers in that bombing as well. But um, you talked about uh, gravity being the reason that states can legitimately militarily intervene in other states. So it seems that gravity is this counterpoint to sovereignty, right? Um, and I think you explicate that really well in your in your article that it's this trigger of international jurisdiction as well as um, the definition of culpability and it it triggers the ramifications of an offense. So it seems that gravity is the linchpin of international criminal and humanitarian law. But may you please elaborate more on the development of gravity in public international law and the current acceptable definition and its malleability? Yeah, as you point out, I mean, gravity, part of the reason that I came to this research was because when I was writing The Duty to Refrain um, and focusing on grave crimes, I realized that, you know, grave crimes, uh, gross violations of international law, that term is used frequently in international spaces, both by political actors, by courts, and even within treaties. Um, But it's actually um, never defined. Um, There may, in fact, um, be sort of like a, um, a, you know, great ambiguity in terms of what we actually mean when we say the words grave crime or grave violation of international law. And the irony of it all is that 
Declaring that something is a grave violation of international law has extraordinary consequences. It can give um, a court, such as the ICC, jurisdiction over an individual, which means that they don't receive the protections of uh, their sovereign nations that they might otherwise get. It can mean, as we've talked about, that uh, states feel empowered to engage in military action. Um, it can also mean that states are prohibited from selling states um, arms if they've engaged in grave violations of international um, human rights law or humanitarian law. And so as you point out, it really is acting as a counterweight to so sovereignty. Um, and it allows states to do things that otherwise would be illegal for them to do. And the risk of that is similar to kind of the R2P risk, or maybe it is kind of intrinsically um, tied to that R2P risk. It's when you don't have a concrete understanding of what you mean when you say something is a grave violation of international law, it can be really malleable and um, evoked for geopolitical interest um, when there's not really any there there. Um, and indeed, there are useful functions to gravity. I'm not saying that it, it should be eliminated. I just think that it needs to be concretized, that we need to, when we call something a grave violation, we need to understand what we mean by that and what actions are appropriate. Right. I mean, it's an excellent point to say that if you have an ambiguous definition that inherently malleable, it can be modified to suit the interests of the people that are defining it. Um, but then on the other hand, it's a very nuanced issue and it's really difficult to define. Uh, Frederick Magre argues that an international criminal lawyer's normative landscape is flat. And he goes further to say that the concept should take into account more broader social perceptions of what is morally alarming. And I think that that's also a really good point because it's so difficult to differentiate the gradations of gravity with respect to such heinous crimes. I mean, is it graver to start on a genocidal campaign that only ends up killing a few thousand people? then abducting hundreds of thousands of children, torturing them and forcibly recruiting them into conflict. I mean, it's, these are impossible. Then there are crimes that the international community has not yet accepted as sufficiently grave because the consequences may be argued to be more indirect, but the outcomes may be far greater. For instance, environmental crimes affecting millions, such as northern riparian states diverting and polluting water, for instance, Turkey and its Greater Anatolian Project, or flagrantly increasing carbon emissions with the full knowledge that whole nations, all low-lying islands and areas will be wiped out in the next couple of generations. I mean, this is a cultural geographic genocide that's unprecedented in history, and yet it's not even in the definition of genocide. With such plurality of interests, how are we to develop a static and strict definition? I don't know that a single definition is possible or even desirable, in fact. Um, instead, I guess what I'm articulating here is that we should have various factors that should be weighted. Um, and the project that I've undertaken is really a close examination of the use of gravity. And through that examination, I've been able to pull out a number of factors that are frequently evoked when um, 
when actors declare something to be grave. Um, so, for example, uh, when it affects vulnerable populations, when it's in you know, the intent of the actors to commit that crime when it involves an abuse of authority. Uh, Those are all factors that are weighed when something is called grave. And I do think that gravity, to some extent, needs to differ because there's different remedies that are associated with gravity. We can't say there should be the same definition of gravity when we're talking about using military intervention versus using, for example, sanctions. I, I think that Again, if you have a continuum of tools that are available to you, it should correspond to the gravity of whatever is occurring. So gravity operates more as a continuum um, as opposed to kind of a, a, a black line or, you know, sort of like a line in the sand. Um, at the same time, I think that clarifying these factors and to your point about, you know, some things being excluded from gravity or not considered great because they don't immediately um, harm the physical integrity of human beings, but their long-term effects are essentially the annihilations of whole populations. There, I think that we need to consider, are there other factors that we need to add into this calculus that accurately and completely address those great violations? And I think that to some extent they do exist. So I will say that one of the factors that I've also identified is duration of a harm. And so, for example, um, some bodies have determined that the violation of the right to education can be a grave crime if it's extraordinarily prolonged. So in the case of Yemen, for example, we know that children are not going to school because they're fearful that their schools will be targeted by airstrikes. Um, That would be a grave violation because of the prolonged nature of it. So in some, I think that the utility of this project is not in creating one universal threshold that determines when the international community can sort of pierce the sovereign veil across all legal regimes. It's more of a scale. And each enforcement body needs to determine, you know, according to its priority and resources, where it wants to put its thumb on that scale. My argument is that it needs to be clear um, for each body um, and each remedy you know, where that thumb goes on the scale and that the risk of um, maintaining this ambiguity is that um, states can use it in a way that allows them to promote their own geopolitical interests and not in the interest of human rights. Yeah, I think I think that that's a crucial, crucial point. And uh, and 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 with that, I'd like to concentrate a little bit on the ICC and this predicament that the ICC has now. Because as long as the ICC focuses on Africa and absolves the UK and Israel, for instance, we have selective enforcement. Part of the issue may not be political and may simply be strategic in an attempt to efficiently utilize limited and increasingly attached resources But even if this is the case, it nevertheless leads to the same consequence of dominant states being absolved or having the ability to shun and even actively attack the ICC, such as the US, while weaker state actors are prosecuted. The tragedy is that the prosecution of the most heinous crimes against humanity can never be a vindication of international law, in my opinion, until all such crimes can be punished, irrespective of their perpetrator, 
because otherwise it does not teach that humanity will not stand for these crimes, but that one must gain sufficient power to be able to commit these crimes with impunity. In my view, it's true that gravity is meant to be a resource-limiting concept, and I actually don't think that that's a bad thing. Institutions like the ICC who have limited resources should be able to focus on what they consider to be the worst of the worst. Um, my fear, and I think it's similar to the one that you articulated, is that when we leave these things vague, that also may act as a filter to shield powerful states from accountability, even when they are engaged in atrocious acts. Um, and we see this um, at the ICC with the dismissal of a number of high-profile cases involving powerful states like you mentioned, the United States, the UK, and Israel on the basis of gravity. That's sort of their escape valve, in my view, to um, get around um, dealing with powerful actors that can make life very difficult for them. And it's the juridical malleability of gravity that allows for its manipulation. And we see this in a number of examples. For example, the um, situation, there was a situation to look into atrocities that were occurring in Iraq. And that was OTP came under criti heavy criticism for deciding not to proceed with it because they thought it wasn't grave enough. And they sort of infamously made this statement that, you know, the situation only involved, an, you know, less than 20 victims, whereas situations in Uganda, the DRC, and Darfur involved killings of thousands of uh, civilians. And that has now been seen, especially in light of um, the what's come to light in Fallujah as being inaccurate. And so there's this sense um, amongst African nations that the ICC only focuses on them, and that's undermined its legitimacy and uh, contributed to what I see as a crisis um, of legitimacy at the ICC. So following on from this crisis of legitimacy, and, and I agree, it, it is certainly a crisis of legitimacy. and um, one one point that, uh, that Daryl Robinson made specifically about the ICC, and he utilized Marty Kuskinemi's analysis um, of arguments in international law. So we have, on the one hand, we have the utopian argument of, of international law that's too dis disconnected from power. And on the other hand, we have the apology argument of international law, and that is too connected to power. It's too, um, too realistic, right? It defers to power. So how do you see the ICC prosecutorial office with its limited resources serving its mandate best in the face of this problem that any decision it makes is going to be uh, rendered political and illegitimate if it goes after the US or the UK, it's going to be deemed political, right? If it goes after just African states or, or other weaker states, it's going to be deemed political. So it's in this catch-22. What's, what's it going to do? It's interesting. He's sort of characterizing the ICC and being as this position of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Uh, so if you say no to a situation involving a powerful state, people will say, aha, um, you're being political. You're afraid to take this case because you don't want to um, alienate a powerful nation like the United States. Um, so that's sort of the, you know, um, 
apology critique that he's making. But if you say yes to a situation, people can argue, on the other hand, that this also shows you're political. Um, you're bending to the rules to go, um, you know, basically after high-profile cases um, to advance your prestige. And that's sort of a utopian critique. And I think that it's fair to some extent to say that international legal scholars are gaining their scholarly chops by criticizing the ICC and that no institution is going to be ever be perfect and immune from politics. Um, even, you know, the U.S. <laughs> Supreme Court, as we know, is not immune from politics. And so I think that in part, we have to recognize that all institutions are acting in a political environment, but what binds them and what makes them um, continue to have legitimacy and promote the rule of law is when they have, they're undergirded by principle and by um, sort of the idea that there are certain things that are untouchable by politics. And I think that's where the ICC has gone wrong. Um, the U.S. has done kind of a yeoman's job of really targeting the ICC and making it seem um, like a pariah, both under the Bush administration and now under the Trump administration. We see orchestrated efforts to undermine its legitimacy. And to some extent, at least in the early days, um, the ICC caved to those and was worried, um, I think, in part, um, you know, some of the reasons why it didn't proceed with the Iraq or Afghanistan situations was because they were fearful of retribution from the United States. And that's actually what we're seeing right now, ironically, in the U.S., essentially saying that it's going to ban visas for staff members at the ICC and, in fact, revoking the visa of the chief uh, prosecutor of the ICC right now after she decided to request an investigation into Afghanistan. And so to some extent, you know, these are realities that exist um, and can't be ignored because they will inhibit the functioning of the ICC. But I do think that the ICC would be very well served if it held to um, the principles for which it was created. So if you look at the Rome Statute, the very reason that the ICC was created was to, you know, create accountability for the worst of the worst crimes. And um, part of that is accomplished in how they're defined. But then now there's been this sort of additional overlay of admissibility, um, even above and beyond, you know, what these definition of crimes are that allow for both the prosecutor and the court to say, we don't want to continue with this investigation. And if it chooses to continue using that filtering mechanism, um, I think it needs to do a better job of kind of transparently um, articulating the reasons why. Um, and if you look, interestingly, at some of the early prosecutor determinations, for example, I'm thinking in particular of the situation of Iraq, um, it's very cursory why it decides that that is not grave. And I think that's what draws the criticism. Unless you can sort of clearly articulate um, both factors that are um, underlying your opinion and then sort of how they apply to various situations, you're going to open yourself up to criticism. And I think that's the trap that the ICC has fallen into. Hmm. So, so this current um, predicament that the ICC is in with the U.S. actively attacking the ICC, 
I mean, on the one hand, we can say that this uh, delegitimizes the ICC even further because the U.S. being so actively hostile and refusing to accede to the ICC's jurisdiction, in fact, actively attacking it, must certainly encourage and fortify the contumacious. However, perhaps this is the very thing the ICC needs so that other states can see, depending on how the ICC reacts, uh, that the ICC is independent and is doing what it can if it stands up to the US right now, and that it is not just a mechanism of um, powerful interests utilizing the ICC to uh, pierce the sovereignty of other nations um, under these guides of human rights, that it is actually a court that um, fulfills its mandate under the Rome Statute. Now, um, I, I, <laughs> it's a delicate a- a predicament that it's in, but I, but I think this is the fork in the road for the ICC. And depending on how it acts, I think the whole world is watching and that it, this could actually be a good thing. Yeah, that's a really um, interesting point. I, I think that you're right. This is sort of a critical moment for the ICC to demonstrate. Um, and unfortunately, I think it's somewhat failed in that, you know, the pretrial chamber in response to the chief prosecutor's request to, you know, create an investigation into the situation of Afghanistan has actually said that it will not proceed with that investigation. Um, and, and many believe that sort of this is a repeat of um, the Iraq case to some extent in which the ICC is now sort of um, ascending to the pressures of the United States, uh, which, you know, under the Bush administration, their tactic was a bit different than the Trump administration. So their tactic was, we're going to, um, you know, force other nations that are members of uh, or state parties to the Rome Statute, state parties of the ICC, um, to basically enter into bilateral agreements saying that they're not going to extradite or transfer any U.S. military soldiers to the jurisdiction of the ICC. And if you don't um, agree to this bilateral agreement, uh, there was actually a bill passed that said they could cut funding of those nations. And indeed, they did cut cut funding to seven of those nations. And so in part... um, it's almost like a repeat of what happened under the Bush administration. Um, And I fear, you know, the outlook um, for the ICC because of these struggles is not looking too great. Um, You know, the pretrial chamber's decision um, to um, refrain from going any further in Afghanistan, I think, opens up um, the the ICC to further critique and perhaps even, uh, other countries to continue to withdraw from its jurisdiction. So we've digressed into general international questions, um, which necessarily impact the duty to refrain, which we were discussing before. But I want to turn back to the duty to refrain right now. You discuss in your article both soft and hard enforcement. How do you see the interrelation between soft and hard enforcement with respect to the duty to refrain? And which do you think will have more utility? I think they're sort of two sides of the same coin. So you really can't have one without the other. Um, Hard law complements and fortifies soft law enforcement mechanisms mechanisms like acculturation and norm internalization. Um, And we're now in this moment really seeing the limits of relying solely on 
you know, hard law um, enforcement mechanisms because when states don't buy into the norms, they don't abide by them. And because there's no sort of international enforcement mechanism uh, broadly, it's easy for states to ignore them. And so in part, states need to believe that the norms are important in order for them to be upheld. Um, At the same time, you know, there's a lot of jurisprudence, uh, sorry, there's a lot of scholarship that's looked at why it's so important to reduce certain norms to writing and how it helps to really reinforce uh, soft law mechanisms. And so, for example, we can think of um, the Universal Declaration for Human Rights, um, a soft, what's considered to be, you know, a soft law uh, mechanism, and how over time that sort of created norms that the international community abides by, even though we know that they're non-binding and that there's no enforcement mechanism. And over time, states are internalizing those mechanisms and abiding by them, uh, even though, um, you know, as I point out, there is no binding mechanism of enforcement for them. At the same time, um, I can give the example of Guatemala and the Genocide Convention, an example where the enforcement of hard law failed. So Guatemala is an interesting case in which they had signed on to the Genocide Convention and then proceeded to commit genocide against their own civilians because, you know, the norm um, structure, the soft law piece wasn't there. There were no outside actors that were sort of pressuring them to abide by those standards. And even though on the books genocide was illegal, they um, decided to perpetrate it because they didn't think it would have any consequences for them. Right, so soft law is more, more in terms of pressure and making a state like a social pariah, right, in the world community. Yeah, I, I think that there's, you know, soft law really um, just means that law is not binding. And so um, we talk about the enforcement of soft law often being, um, like you said, in terms of, you know, naming and shaming a country portraying it as an international pariah. Um, So that's a piece of it for sure. There's also the acculturation piece, which is that we will be friendly with states that are, um, you know, not violating human rights. And we can think of the example of Turkey and its efforts to join the EU as one example of that, where, you know, as long as Turkey continued to violate human rights, um, it, it, that sort of inhibited its ability to join the EU. Um, I guess I just also want to make the point that we um, are seeing also kind of, I wanted to maybe hammer out a little bit more what I see as the limitations of hard law enforcement uh, when states don't buy into those soft law norms. And there has been a bit, even on, you know, we discussed earlier Kogan's, um norms and how states, uh, it's illegal for states to violate those norms. And one of those norms is torture. And we're currently seeing um, backsliding of that prohibition. You know, we see Trump uh, entertaining the idea of using torture again openly and and publicly. We see him hiring a CIA director who is um, involved in torture after 9-11. And there's a risk if we don't continue to enforce these mechanisms, and I'm not talking about enforcement in a court of law, which is also important, but also in our rhetoric rhetoric as a world leader, um, that we're actually signaling to other states 
that torture is okay. And that's the risk of, you know, having one side of the coin not be fulfilled. Um, there's a there's this sense right now amongst human rights scholars and advocates that we are backsliding um, in terms of human rights. We see, um, you know, Philip Alston saying that uh, the world as we know it um, in terms of human rights is no longer. We see Ingrid Worth saying that the age of human rights is is over. Um, there's also been a number of human rights organizations that have released reports that show that human rights conditions, um, unfortunately, are globally declining. So that's sort of the place that we're at right now because of both the lack, I think, of um, hard enforcement and soft enforcement mechanisms. Um, I don't think that's the full story, but I do think we have to recognize that there are limits to the existing structures of enforcement that we need to grapple with. You mentioned that Trump was open, openly um, talking about possibly using torture, but this uh, administration aside, it seems that, that the international law is actually advancing because whatever their actions, states currently seem to argue they either did not do what they're accused of or they justify or excuse their actions based on already established principles of international law. I find it very difficult to imagine a state saying it intends to, for instance, and will commit genocide or that it intends to and will facilitate another state in committing genocide. And this seems to attest to the fact that we've already internalized these um, youth coggins norms, right, these peremptory norms. Now, do you see a development of this internalization with domestic jurists increasingly referring to international law to hold their own governments to account in domestic courts? Is that something that we can see as a next step? Yeah, whenever um, I'm sort of at human rights conferences or engaging with human rights uh, practitioners, I think there's this um, sort of bleak outlook on where we are um, in terms of human rights law and our world as a whole. And it's not that I think that that's unwarranted. Of course, the rule of law is under grave threat right now. Um, at the same time, I don't know that that really, um, that the full picture is really represented there. I mean, if we think about what was legal during Grotius's time, the, the man who's considered to be the father of international law, war was an acceptable diplomatic tool to get what you want. Um, and as you point out, you know, that is no longer the case. You can't just, uh, we have to, it's sort of ironic because you have to create this idea of, of grave violations of human rights occurring in order to justify that sort of action. Whereas in the past, um, that was a, you know, perfectly acceptable diplomatic tool to get territory or other things that you wanted. And so I think that it's important as we reflect on what is, I believe, a crisis um, of human rights um, to, to not lose sight of the fact that we've come very far and that um, I guess in my view, what I will say is that human rights can be cyclical and that we have steps forward and we have steps back. And my view is that um, kind of echoing something that Martin Luther King said is that overall, the arc of time bends towards justice. And I think that we're at a moment when unfortunately we are seeing some backsliding in international human rights law. But the beacon of hope, um, and it's sort of what you alluded to 
earlier is the mobilization of groups to demand human rights. And I've seen that whenever I sort of get discouraged by the current state of affairs. Um, I think to the example of Guatemala, which of course right now is experiencing a little bit of backsliding itself, but also has um, recently um, really dramatic prosecutions of war criminals that when I, um, you know, I lived there in 2003, um, sitting there, and Rios Montt, who was a general that was the head of state and committed genocide, was actually um, the head of the Congress there. And I never imagined that there would be a day when he would be um, prosecuted in his own courts. But indeed, that happened in 2013. Now, Guatemala, of course, is, is to some extent a difficult example because right now, in part because of you know Trump's encouragement of Morales and withdrawal of support for an anti-corruption uh, hybrid uh, UN commission there, um, is backsliding to places where it was before. But I think that if you look at um, what Guatemala was able to accomplish, now it's a country with um, they had a 95% impunity rate and now has become the first nation in the world to have convicted a former head of state in a domestic court for genocide. The first uh, country to, um, you know, hold a, um, officials accountable for the use of rape as a war crime. Um, and so I think that we need to also, while we're examining um, the international system, recognize that there are certain achievements that are happening. And um, Beth Simmons had um, done a study sort of in response to um, an article basically saying that human rights treaties are worthless um, and that they're not achieving what they're supposed to. Um, Beth Simmons did an in-depth empirical analysis of human rights and found that, in fact, where human rights is successful is when groups on the ground, civil society, use it as a way to organize and push back against uh, government oppression. I would agree. And and it seems that you know, the, the people on the ground can affect the interpretation of the courts and the interpretation of domestic courts can utilize uh, the interpretation of international law. And, <laughs> and so there the, the seems to be this symbiotic relationship that municipal law and public international law and the people on the ground, rather than something that uh, so many have argued is um, necessarily one that is an, a relationship of conflict. Yeah, I think international law is most effective when it's used um, at the domestic level. Um, I, I wonder, you know, so much resources, so many resources and energy and even scholarly focus has been placed on the International Criminal Court. And because of that, um, I think to some extent we've lost sight of um, the places where it has the most power, which is at the local level, um, which is why I think Guatemala is such an important example of how international law can be used effectively to hold those most responsible for atrocities accountable in ways that are really meaningful for the population. I was uh, in law school, an intern for the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. And as part of, it's based in Arusha, Tanzania. And as part of my work there, um, 
I went to Memorial um, in Rwanda and met a gentleman who was the sole survivor of a massacre um, in his town. He was the sole survivor, and he also was the docent at one of the memorials. And I didn't tell him that I was working at the ICTR, but I asked him what his opinion was of the court. And for him, it felt so distant from his current reality um, that it was almost meaningless. He really felt that the people that were being held in Arusha had much better lives than he did. Um, he was, you know, struggling um, to make a living. He, you know, felt that they were getting better health care and food than he could afford or have. And um, that sort of began, I guess, what I will call my disillusionment with international criminal law. I really think that when possible, um, it's important that we fortify the domestic sphere. And indeed, that is in the Rome Statute. You know, we, we're supposed to have this principle of complementarity in which, you know, there's sort of embedded in that um, this idea that we, we should be helping states to um, have these prosecutions on their own. But I think there's an outsized focus on the activities of the ICC at least among scholars and possibly amongst practitioners as well, as well that has um, really done um, a disservice to jurisdictions that are trying to use uh, international law at the local level, where in my view, it has more meaning for victims. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. Kind of ironic, isn't it, that when you're looking at the international sphere, you have to look at the domestic sphere to develop the domestic sphere, but also um, the international sphere in the, in the same uh, vein. But um, going back to this uh, international sphere, we need to structure the international space. So then the issue becomes, how do we structure it? And the current international structure is still the... It still has inherent structural biases, and it's still indisputably the structure of colonialist history. Apart from bilateral treaties in the ancient world, which were more honored in their breach, Rome was fantastic in making treaties just to breach them, for instance, with Carthage. Modern international law, as you said, uh, earlier has been fathered by Grotius, and there was also the Juris Vittoria from Spain. And yet these jurists at that time were really focused on the legitimization of new world colonization and the delineation of these new territories between the old world powers. For instance, what is the treaty in the 1800s that, that everybody says was a great step towards uh, peace and international law and so forth. But really, when you read it, it's like the Africa land grab, right? So it's, um, it, it, the name escapes me, but, um, but, but really, it, when we see the rise of international law, we see it's very inextricably linked to colonialism and how the European powers are just carving out, um, the world. And then after World War One, the League of Nations established a mandate system which institutionalized colonialism. And of course, it's because of this mandate system and powerful interests that wanted oil, that suddenly this state of Iraq that never before existed and perhaps maybe never should have existed in the way 
that it was <laughs> decided at that time so that the UK and the US can have their respective oil fields. That that system institutionalized colonialism because they were looking at how civilized states were. You had, you know, A, B, C of the mandate system and how well the European powers thought these states were civilized. And then, of course, after World War II, we have our current system and we discussed that the P5, the permanent members of the Security Council, aren't even the strongest powers today um, and the remnants of uh, the Cold War. Obviously, why Germany at that time was not on the um, <laughs> the Security Council at all, and um, even though it's a, a major power today. Um, so even after that, with the power that the Security Council has over the General Assembly, we had these issues because many states, I mean, I, I think we doubled in, in how many states we have after World War II because there was a lot of decolonization. And these independent states wanted to have a new international economic order. They wanted their plundered resources to be nationalized and have sovereignty over them. Because just because you have these legal borders, if another state controls all your resources in the interest of protecting colonial investment, what real independence do you have? And unfortunately, the 60s and the 70s resulted in a loss to these newly decolonized states. We did not get this new international economic order. What we got was a delineation of the public and private realm of international law that protected colonial investment and multinational uh, corporations later on. So this international space has been used to legitimize international hierarchy, and it continues to legitimize this hierarchical nature of, um, of international law, even within our institutions. For instance, the Bretton Woods institutions, which have caused so much grief. It seems that the only means forward for a truly consensus-based system that takes into account the entire international community must refocus on the General Assembly or restructure the Security Council, for instance, by eliminating permanent members. I, I, I don't know. Is, are these, is this what needs to be done? Or are there even more pervasive structural problems that we need to account for in the international space? I, I agree with you um, that the you know, Security Council structure is inherently flawed, um, that it concretized the powers, of, the power of the winners of World War II. Um, as we've talked about, we can see its failures on full display um, with its inability to address the atrocities of the conflict in Syria. Um, I even agree with you very much so that much of the international law that exists today uh, really helped to, was created to help serve and uh, sort of institutionalize colonial gains. At the same time, I also want to make sure that we don't lose sight of the gains that we've accomplished through international law. So, um, you know, we can remember that in Grotius's time, um, I've talked about this before, but it was perfectly acceptable to use war as a diplomatic tool. Um, and now, you um, 
you know, we have very strict, or at least in theory, strict limitations on what states can do. So they're only able to use force in specific circumstances, such as the self-defense, defense of your own subjects, or when there's been a gross violation of international law. Um, so I guess my sense is that I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I don't want to um, sort of create it again from the ground up, even recognizing that there are inherent structural flaws. My my view is that we should, um, similar to what you have discussed, operate within the existing system to create um, a more equal playing field. And there's some ways that I can see that happening. So the first is one that you suggest. So I think that um, it would be much more effective to have no permanent members of the Security Council and instead to have rotating members that are voted in by the General Assembly. I think that would go a long way into um, ensuring that the stalemate that has existed um, in the face of our most um, troubling atrocities would be a step in the right direction. I also, and I, and I highlight this in the Duty to Refrain article, think that there is more room for the UN General, General Assembly to have more of a role in ensuring that when grave crimes threaten collective security, they're able to act. So this Uniting uh, for Peace resolution basically says that when the Security Council, because of a lack of unanimity of the permanent members, is unable to um, exercise its full responsibility to maintain international peace and security. And there appears to be, and I'm reading from the language of the resolution, and there appears to be a threat to peace, a breach of peace, or an act of, um, of aggression. That In that case, the General Assembly should consider um, measures that it can collectively take to ensure the restoration of international peace and security. And I think that there, you know, is, um, if this power that exists in the Uniting for Peace resolution were more regularly realized that we would have a more equal United Nations. Um, and currently, you know, the this principle is, does not allow for the General Assembly to, for example, authorize the use of force, but there are other things that it can do through it. And one of these things is, is what I articulate in the duty to refrain article. States can band together when they see atrocities occurring and, for example, decide that a nation no longer is a legitimate actor and therefore take away its membership from the United Nations. There's other rights and privileges of membership that are um, effective tools as well. And so I think that it's building upon these existing tools, but creating more of an equal playing field that will ensure, um, you know, greater stability of our world. Um, and it's really, we, we're kind of seeing uh, in the modern day, um, a move away from the desire to act collectively. And I think that that instinct ultimately will threaten our collective peace and security. We've already learned that lesson as a world. Um, and somehow I feel like we may be losing sight of the wars and atrocities that were committed prior to this structure. And I would, I would be fearful of abandoning it wholesale. One of the underlying principles that I think is so important to effective good governance is checks and balances. 
And I think that the international governance structure can play an effective uh, check or balance if it is um, internalized or if it if it is used to support uh, domestic structures. And so I'll again return to the example of Guatemala. So Guatemala, um, in collaboration with the United Nations, established a commission called CICIG, which was an anti-impunity commission. And it authorized um, the UN essentially to come in and work hand in hand with domestic prosecutors, domestic police forces, and domestic judges to really fill out and support the rule of law. Um, And it was a really effective um, mechanism. Now it's sadly under threat by the current president of Guatemala, who was actually targeted by one of its investigations for corruption. And this individual, this president, has been supported by Trump, um, in part because he was, uh, you know, made Guatemala one of the first states to recognize um, what, you know, the U.S. did in terms of um, recognizing the uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Um, you know, in that way, it won favor with our current administration and is trying to actually, the president is trying to expel, um, similarly to what the U.S. is doing with the ICC, ironically, the head of that commission, and in fact, has said that he will not reauthorize it to continue. But it was a dramatic example of how um, international um, the international community can partner with local forces to great effect. Um, and it even succeeded in um, basically allowing for um, two Guatemalan presidents to be uh, imprisoned and prosecuted for stealing billions of dollars from the Guatemalan people. And so I guess what I see is a promise when the international community can act as a check and balance for national institutions that are failing to live up to their their bargain, that are um, not serving their people. And that's where I see the power of the international community at its best use and international institutions at its best use. Mm, I, I agree. I vehemently agree. I think that um, even domestically in the U.S., we have, um, even, even though... <laughs> Okay, e- even though we have some jurisprudence uh, recently that um, has not developed the Alien Tort Claims Act, we um, we have this weapon that we could utilize international law in domestic courts, and we have used it in the past very effectively, um, and and uh, I, I hope that we continue to do so. And the the other thing, when we have a level playing field in international law, we See, for instance, and the General Assembly, I would say, is a level playing field. The resolutions that come out of the General Assembly, I mean, just just take Israel and, and Israeli settlements in the West Bank, for instance. How many resolutions have there been that that are against this um, continued settlement, the bulldozing of houses in the West Bank, and? And very few countries abstain or vote no. It's always been vehemently an issue that the majority of states in the world um, believe needs to end. And uh, the problem is that they're just General Assembly resolutions. So until we can arm General Assembly resolutions and have them be more effective, because that is 
I mean, that goes back to what international law was, state practice and the opinion of states and a consensus-based system, right, which is what we have with the General Assembly. Um, but another, another thing is that, look, I know I've excoriated <laughs> the international law structure and uh, history, but I am a huge proponent of international law, actually. Um, and I just don't, I, I do think it's important to recognize the history and to recognize the failures of international law, because we have to recognize these to progress international law. But I don't think that any argument that discounts international law simply because of its history and its limitations is productive. It's just not, because what else is there? And moreover, as you mentioned before, law is inherently political. Domestic institutions are not immune from structural biases or historical power structures. In fact, they also are the product of these and perpetuate these. So then we're just reduced to the argument of, well, let's just discount law at all because it's inherently political and where do we stand with that? So my understanding is that the study and practice of international law, if its pervasive problems are analyzed and accounted for, which I think many international scholars these days do recognize that, that it's inherently a progressive activity that seeks the benefit of all humanity rather than merely the people that may currently inhabit what are essentially uh, the arbitrary boundaries of these imagined communities, as Anderson said, of our nation states. I think that it's helpful, and this is, I made this argument at the, um, not last year, but the year before the American Society of International Law's um, annual conference. I was on a panel uh, about teaching international law, and the idea was how do we teach international law in the period of retreat from international law, which we're seeing on so many levels. And the point I made there, and I'll make it here too, is that I think that we, um, do a better service of teaching international law to our students. And maybe also when we're, you know, on the ground working and talking with pra practitioners, if we think about it, not as um, the law itself being an end-all or be-all, but really as a movement. And I think that we need to do more to explain um, in our curriculum and in our scholarship, we need to do more to explore how groups, how civil society are using international law principles um, to advance their objectives. Um, I also was recently at the Law and Society Conference, and um, there was a scholar that was looking at sort of why U.S. advocates are using international human rights law to evoke the right to water and why that's effective even in a country that hardly recognizes international law like the U.S. And there's something that is so, um, I guess, powerful about talking about the rights of all human beings regardless of where they live. And it's solely the, on the basis of their dignity and humanity that they have this right. Um, and I think that when we talk about law merely as an instrument, um, we lose that focus. And I think that, that is true both in terms of teaching domestic law, but possibly more so when we're talking about international law, where, you know, we have sort of an enforcement uh, gap uh, and a compliance gap. Where we see the most enforcement and compliance is when these movements emerge to support um, 
their implementation. And that's really the power of international law and particularly international human rights law. And um, my fear is that when, particularly legal, legal scholars, I think, are more guilty of this, we focus so much on doctrine. I'm sure I, I do it too. Um, these two articles sort of point to that as well. But I think that we also need to explain what drives um, the success stories of international law. What are the things that make it actually um, effective? There's so much critique and criticism that is warranted. I'm not saying that it's not warranted about international law. Um, I've been accused sometimes of being an eternal optimist, and I think that's probably right, um, because I want to see the good in international law. And I do believe, as you do, that it has a lot of utility. I guess the point being that maybe instead of being perpetual crits, uh, we need to also focus on the success stories and where things are going right. I agree. Otherwise, we've already lost. There's no point as we must. It is imperative that we continue to be optimists. It is the only path. Um, So thank you very much, Rachel, for your time today. I really appreciate your insight and discussion of these pertinent matters. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It was really nice to talk with you. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.